obviously, and if you have your Bibles with you, we're going to be um, in Psalm 23 today. So that's about pretty much smack dab in the middle of your Bible. So if you kind of open it up in the middle, you'll be pretty close to Psalm 23. We're also going to uh, jump over into Romans. So we're going to be in Romans chapter 8 briefly, and then we're going to be in Luke chapter 15. So we're going to jump around a little bit. So if you want to stick some little bookmarks in your Bible you'll be ready to go and follow along. But we are continuing today in our, uh, our Psalm 23 series that we started a few months back. So Joe, uh, the last time that he, was, that he was here with us and preached with us, he opened us up in Psalm 23, and he talked to us about, uh, about all the things that, that we see in Psalm 23. I mean, there's just a lot there. Uh, we talked about how this is such a familiar passage to us. We talked about how we see this passage in, in, on coffee cups and Christian pieces of art and, and T-shirts and all types of things because this is just a, a, a passage of Scripture that we love, that, that it's appealing to us. It, it makes us feel good. It's refreshing. And, and so it's, it's just a popular, uh, popular piece of Scripture. It's even popular, if you recall, we talked about how it's even popular in popular culture. So we see glimpses of Psalm 23 used and appropriated in, in secular art and, and music and things like that. It's just something that we're very familiar with. And so we talked a lot about that. We talked about how Psalm 23 and the promises of Psalm 23 are rooted in Psalm 22. If you recall, we talked a lot about that, or Joe talked about that. He tied Psalm 23 into Psalm 22. And if you're not familiar, if you don't remember, Psalm 22 is a, a, a psalm that is is um, just full of messianic promises and foreshadows that we, of Jesus and the work that Jesus would do. So we see that even Jesus is present here in Psalm 23. And then last time, um, when we looked at verse 2, we talked a little bit about the structure of the psalm and some of the imagery. And, and so those are the things that we've kind of glanced or we've looked at so far and we've, we've taught through. And so hopefully you recall some of that. Today we're going to be focusing on verse 3, but before we get there, I want to read the entire psalm, the psalm in its entirety to get us started, just to kind of keep everything in context. So Psalm 23 starts off and it says, the Lord is my shepherd. And before I move on, I just want you to see something right there because we're going to come back to this. But if you notice in your Bible, if you're looking in your Bible or on your Bible app, the word Lord there is in all capital letters. And we've talked about this before, but whenever we see Lord in all capital letters in our Bible, um, that is, is the English translation or substitution, if you will, of God's proper name. So when God is referred to in the Bible by his proper name, Yahweh, that's translated in the English as Lord. It's, it's what, what theologians call the tetragrammaton, which is just a big word that means four letters because in the Hebrew Bible they don't have vowels. So Yahweh is Y-H-W-H. And so that is the four letters. It's the name of God and it means to be. And it comes from Moses' interaction with God in, in the burning bush in Exodus 3 when, when God says, or when Moses says to God, who should I say sent me? Um, God says, I, tell them I am sent you. So that's where that comes from. So I want you to just stick a pin in that because we're going to come back to that. So it says, the Lord is my shepherd. I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside still waters. He restores my soul. He leads me in paths of righteousness for his name's sake. 
Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil. My cup overflows. Surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life, and I shall dwell in the house of the Lord forever. So one of the things I don't think we really talked about much uh, as we started to look at Psalm 23 is, is the, the genre of Psalm 23. So in the Bible, there's, there's lots of different types of literature. There's, there's narratives, there's discourses, there's, there's um, history, there's, there's poetry, there's um, all types of different proverbs and all these different things that we see, different types of literature in the Bible. And so Psalm 23 is poetry. And when we, what we know about poetry, or if you're familiar with poetry, which I'm sure all of us are because we've been through school or we're in school, but poetry is very symbolic language, right? So poets use imaginative words to create pictures for us. And that's what David is doing here. So we see imagery in Psalm 23, and we've talked about some of this last time, but we see this shepherd and the sheep motif in verses 1 through 4. And then at the end, we see this picture of a, of a banquet um, in verses 5 through 6. So we see that God is the shepherd, and then in this, in this poem, David is the sheep. God is the banquet host, and David is the guest. God is active. He's doing and causing things in this, in this passage. And David is passive. He's receiving or benefiting from God's work in his life. But we're intended to not just read the words on the page, right? So we're not just supposed to, when we're reading poetry, we're not just to read the words on the page and, and just take them at face value, but rather we're supposed to read the words on the page and, and it's supposed to create some, some mental pictures for us, right? As we read these words, we're not just supposed to read them as words on the page, but we're supposed to see things in our mind, right? We're supposed to get a picture. That's the goal of the poet in a poem. So in Psalm 23, we see God as our creator and our caretaker and our provider. We see God minister to our needs and our weary souls. We see God as the giver of peace. We see God guide us on the right path. We see God protect us, and we see God richly pour out blessings upon us. We see those pictures. We, we can feel them, right? That's why, we, that's why this psalm is so appealing to us, right? That it, we really put ourselves in the midst of it. We can see ourselves in these green pastures. We can see ourselves lying down beside still waters. We can imagine that and see it in our minds, and it just, it just creates that warm, fuzzy feeling inside of us because we can see it. We can feel it. It's not just words on a page, but it's a picture in our hearts and our minds. So we're going to focus in on verse 3 today, and I want to just focus in on the very first part. We'll call it verse 3a, where he says, He restores my soul. If we think about it, this is really almost kind of like verse 2b. And if you don't know this, you probably do, but if you don't know this, all those little headings and, and numbers and and cross-references and all those things you see in your Bible when you read it and you study it, none of that stuff was there, right? So when David wrote this, he didn't write verse 1 and then write it out and then verse 2 and then write it out. So we added those later on. Those were, those were added later on to help us be able to reference and keep track of where we are in the scriptures. So sometimes we use these things and, and we kind of focus in too much on them and it breaks up some of the thoughts, right? 
that, that the, the author in, initially intended. So this is really kind of like verse 2b. It's, it's tied in to what comes before it. So he makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside still waters. He restores my soul. These are, this is one continuous thought. The first stanza is a painting of the picture of God as the good shepherd for us. That's what we're intended to see here. That's the picture and the imagery that we see in our minds because the Lord, all capitals, Yahweh, is a good shepherd. And David can experience the peace and the rest from worries of life. Because this good shepherd is caring for him, he as the sheep can just rest in that. That he's, that he's being provided for, that he's being protected that God has good things in store for him. See, the good shepherd provides abundantly for all of David's needs. And, and remember, we're talking about needs here, not wants. So that, so that he has no want for anything. The green pastures and the still waters are this place of, of peace and rest where he can lie down and rest his weary soul. And it's provided by the good shepherd. The good shepherd says, he makes me lie down. Right? He leads him into this place and he makes him rest. God provides this rest for him and intends him to walk into it, to rest in it. But he makes, he makes me lie down. So it's like uh, I heard, uh, I think it was Matt Chandler one time, I was like, you can either lie down or you can be made to lie down. Right? So it's like, but he's, he's, you're going to lie down, you're going to rest. God makes sure of it. Yes, God provides for our temporal needs. Right? He provides for the things we need. Right? He gives us uh, us breath and life and he, he makes sure that we have all of the things that we need he keeps the universe moving the sun uh shining all of the things that we need all those those biological processes that keep your body alive and the the things that that, that provide food for us and all of the things that we depend on for human life he provides for all of those things but that's not really the picture that david's painting for us here is it that's not really what he's talking about because he talks about restoring our soul. There's something bigger going on here. So yes, sure, he provides for all of our temporal needs, but he also provides for our spiritual needs. He restores our soul. This rest and this peace isn't just like, man, I had a rough day at work or it's been a busy Christmas break and I'm tired and I just need some rest. Sure, God provides rest for us. He instructs us and commands us to rest regularly. But, but, but the picture here in Psalm 23 is, is bigger than that. It's this rest for our soul. It's a soul rest, which is a, a different kind of rest than we're familiar with in our day-to-day -day lives. See, we have this tendency, I think, to want to read Psalm 23 through the lens of or with a desire for prosperity. I think that's where we naturally tend to go. I think that's where people naturally tend to, to go when they read this psalm. I think it tends to be a lot of the teaching on this psalm is kind of rooted in this, like, yeah, God is providing all these things for you, right? He wants to, to lead you into this peace. He wants you to feel safe and warm and fuzzy and prosperous and all of these things. We want life to be easy. We want God to take away all of our problems. We want to have everything that we want right? That's our desire. And when we read something like Psalm 23, we're like, see, God wants that for me too, doesn't he? And then we feel like if we get all of those things, if we have all of those things in order, if we get all of those things, if God gives us all of those things, then we'll be satisfied, won't we? Then we can just rest. We can enter into this rest that God talks about. But that's not really true, is it? Right? 
We just celebrated Christmas. If you remember, I talked a couple weeks ago about the $950 billion that we as Americans will spend or spent on Christmas gifts this year. We got all those shiny new things. And I remember when my kids were little, Tracy and I, at one point, we got to, to this point in Christmas where we were just like, what are we doing? Because we would get the, all these things and you'd spend all this money for our kids and then like they'd play with them for like two days and then they, you just saw them sitting somewhere in the house, right? It's like they lose interest so quickly. And it's not just kids, right? We're the same way. Like we get something new, we get something shiny, and then very quickly we lose interest in it. We get a new car and we keep it all shined up and clean for a month maybe, and then you start to have the, like, the McDonald's wrappers laying on the back floor, right? It starts to just get dirty and you start to just lose, you, don't, you, know, you lose the motivation to keep it all nice and shiny, don't you, right? We're the same way, we just, we, we constantly feel like, like all these things will satisfy our souls, but they don't, they never, they never deliver on the promises. And we come back and we feel like we're, we're then thirsty again. So David knew this, right? Because David experienced hard times. He knew that the, that the peace, the, the temporal peace was short-lived. He experienced hard times. He was hungry and he was thirsty and tired. He was all of those things. If you remember in, in 1 Samuel 21, he ate the bread of the presence in the temple, the holy bread, because him and his men were so hungry that they ate the bread of the presence, which was the holy bread that was not for them, it was for the priests. But they were just so hungry that they, they went into the, the temple there and they ate that bread. So he knew what it was like to be tired and on the run and, and, and in need. He experienced those things. It wasn't always sunshine and rainbows for David. So when he's writing Psalm 23 from that experience, we know that that's not what he's saying, right? He's not promising us and doesn't expect God to make everything comfortable all the time. That's not what he has in mind here because he experienced that. See, David is worshiping God and celebrating his provision at the spiritual level. That's really what he's talking about here in Psalm 23. It says, he restores my soul. He nourishes my soul. He mends my soul. He repairs my soul. David's picture here is ultimately one of God as the provider of salvation. That's really what the psalm here is teaching us. It's talking about something bigger than just our temporal needs. It's talking about our greatest spiritual need. And David recognizes that the biggest problem in his life, it, it's, not, it's not from outside of him, but rather it's from inside of him. He sees that the biggest problem that, he, that, he needs, to, that needs to be addressed, his biggest need, comes from within. It's his sin. The biggest problem is spiritual brokenness. It's the biggest problem that David experienced. It's the biggest problem that we experience. It might not always feel like the biggest problem, those worldly problems can get in, come in and they can choke that out and make us feel like those are the biggest problems, right? Like, what am I going to do about my kids? Or what am I going to do about these bills? Or this, un, this unseen car repair that, I, you know, I got to shout out all this money for? What am I going to do about my job? Or what am I going to do about all these other problems that we see day in and day out that get in the way that we think are our biggest problems that we pray to God to take away from us because then life will be easy and we'll be satisfied. But our biggest problem is our spiritual brokenness. David sees that. He knows that. That's what he's talking about here 
in Psalm 23. You see, God is the source of all life, but perhaps more importantly for us, um, he is the, the source of new life. From an internal perspective, that's perhaps even more important to us, that he is the source and giver of new life. You see, the word translated as restores here is the Hebrew verb shuv. Shuv is that word. In its most basic sense, it means to return or to turn back. So that might sound familiar to you, right? We've talked about that before. It reminds us of some other words that we use here in church and in our, in our Christian lives. So one sense in, the, in which it is used, it's to speak of restoring life back into something, reinvigorating something. And another sense in which it is used, it's to speak of repentance, right? This turning back or turning away from one thing and turning to something else. We, that's how we describe repentance, isn't it? It's this turning from, so we're on this path, we're heading this direction, headlong into hell, and then repentance is this turning back in the other direction, where we turn and we reorient ourselves and we turn towards God. We're running from God, but then we turn towards God. That's the language that we use of repentance. And I think we can really see both of them here, can't we? If we think about the imagery, I think we can see both here. Because he says, he restores my soul, but then it continues, right? He leads me in paths of righteousness. This is the natural progression that we see in the lives of regenerate believers. Theologians use this term ordo salutis, which is just a Latin word that's, that, says, that means order of salvation. And it describes the progression that we see described in the scriptures. It's kind of like the logical order that we see for how salvation works. How God uses and acts to redeem or restore sinners. How he restores the soul. It can be a confusing term, though, because it, it doesn't speak to a, a, a sequence of events, right? So, so when we think of an order of something, we think of, like, this happens, then this happens, then this happens, then this happens, then this happens, and there can be periods of time between them, right? Like, if I'm building a house, right, I can lay the foundation, and then the foundation can sit for a little while, and then I can frame up the house, and then that can sit for a little while, and then I can put up the, the walls, and then I can build the interior, right? And there's this progression of time that takes place between each of them. But that's not always what happens in God's, in, in the way that God saves people. So rather, this kind of describes the logical relationships that exist between these different acts of God in salvation. Think of it a little bit like, I don't know if you've ever, if you're crazy enough like me to want to fix everything in your house, but if you've ever gotten into something like try to fix a, a, an appliance or something like that, when you open it up, there's a wiring diagram inside, right? So you don't kill yourself. It tells you like where all the wires go and how all the circuits work. And if you look at a wiring diagram, the lines go all over the place. So sometimes one line or one device in the wiring diagram can have lines that go to multiple things. That's kind of how the order of salutis works, or the order of salvation works in the theological sense, where some of these things can ha happen at the same time, some of them um, happen over time, some of them, you know, they, they happen in different ways. They're all wired together in this, in this logical way so that it all works. I think one of the best summaries of the ordo salutis in Scripture is found in Paul's letter to the Romans. So we're going to turn over there in Romans chapter 8. Let's turn over to Romans chapter 8. find my bookmark here. Okay, Romans chapter 8. 
So in Romans chapter 8, in, in verses 29 and 30, we see um, Paul give us a, a very good picture of the order of salvation, the way that God redeems sinners. Let's read it together. Starting in verse 29, he says, For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. So what does it look like when God restores the soul and leads us in paths of righteousness? Well, the Bible gives us an answer here in Romans 29. Paul gives us this framework or this, this wiring diagram for how it all comes together. The first thing that we see there is foreknowledge. And this is, can be another uh, confusing term for us because um, it doesn't mean that God knew beforehand in this cognitive sense, like that he was aware of beforehand, right? Because we know that God is eternal. He knows all things. He's omniscient, which means he knows everything. And the way that he knows everything is a little bit different in the way that we know things, right? Like we know things because we become aware of them. Like at some point in my life, I learned that two plus two equals four. I didn't know it at one point, but then I become aware of it, and now I know it. But that's not how God's knowledge works. God is eternal, and he knows all things from before the beginning of the world. And the way that he knows all these things is, is, is not conditional upon the, the passing of time, right? Like a, like a spy who is, is seeing everything that, that happens as it happens. That's not how God knows things. Rather, his knowledge is rooted in his divine providence or his sovereignty. He knows all things because he is the author of all things. He creates everything. Everything that happens, happens according to his will. So as the author, right, when an author writes a story, he knows the story before he ever puts it down on paper. It's in his mind. It's, it's, his, it's his will, right, to tell that story. The story pr proceeds and progresses the way the author desires for it to. And God is the author of all things. So all things happen according to his will. That's an important thing for us to know. He knows all things because all things happen according to his will. The second thing then we see here is predestination. And this is closely related to the foreknowledge because predestination means to determine beforehand. Predestination and foreknowledge are a little bit like two sides of the same coin we think about it really see God exercises his will in such a way that all that he has decreed will come to pass right God because he is sovereign because he has all the power because all things happen according to his will he he is he makes all things happen in, in a way in this supernatural way where he assures that all things happen the way that he desires for them to happen because he has all of the knowledge and all of the power, he alone is able to make sure that everything happens the way that he desires. And then finally, we see election. This is a particular aspect of predestination, right? So it's like, if we think of, of predestination as like God determines beforehand how all these things will happen, then election is this kind of sliver of that picture that speaks specifically to those who will be conformed to the image of his son. That God has chosen or predestined some people to be conformed to the image of his son. 
This is completely an act of God, and his election is not based on any work that we can, that we can do, anything that we can do to earn his favor. Rather, it's merciful and entirely of grace. This election is not based on this merit, this foreseen merit in us within the objects of mercy. We see this in Ephesians 2 and John chapter 6. The, the scriptures are quite clear that God doesn't look into to eternity and say like, you know who I really like? I really do like Chris Morris. I think I'm going to put him on my team, right? It's not like a, like a draft where he's just picking the best of us and putting us on his team. Rather, we are on the team because God has chosen us, not because of anything in us. Foreknowledge and predestination and election, they're often offensive to us, right? Those, those are, are theological truths that cause a lot of, of divisiveness among believers because they can be, they can feel really offensive to us. It offends our, our sensibilities. Sometimes we feel like we need to make excuses for God. Like, well, that's, I know that's what it sounds like the Bible's saying, but what it really means is this, and we try to soften it up and make it feel more appealing to us. We try to reframe what the Bible teaches in order to make those truths a little less abrasive. The problem, though, is that we have a low view of sin and a low view of God, and we have a high view of ourselves, don't we? We have this high view of man. See, the question we should ask is not, how is it fair that God saves some but not others? But rather, it should be, how is it fair that even one traitorous, wretched, evil sinner who rejects God and the things of God with every fiber of their being could be seen as righteous and perfectly holy before God? How is that possible? How is that fair? That's the question that we should be asking. The transformative work of the Spirit, though, that we see here is, is an umbrella term. So when we, when we see this, this conformance to the image of God or being conformed to the image of God, this is kind of an umbrella term that the scriptures use for, for everything that happens within salvation. It speaks of the entire process, which includes several other parts that Paul specifically mentions here or that are implied throughout this passage. So the next thing that we see is this calling. And this calling happens in two different ways, right? There's this outward calling of the gospel, right? We are called as believers to share the gospel, to take the gospel into the world, to preach the gospel, to herald the good news of Jesus Christ. And, and what we know about good news, right, is that it has to be told, right? News can't be conveyed if it's not told. We don't know what's going on around the world unless we see the news, unless someone tells us, right? I don't, I'm not... I don't live in the Ukraine, so I don't know what's going on in the Ukraine, but we know about it because it's been all over the news, right? But news has to be told. So there's this outward call that happens when people hear the gospel. But then there's also this inward call, this work of the Spirit that we know is regeneration that happens, this, this calling inside, this stirring of the Spirit inside us that makes us desire the things of God. Because what we know from the Scriptures is that Apart from, from this work of the Spirit in our lives, we are spiritually dead. And what we know about dead people is that dead people don't do anything, right? They're just dead. They don't move, they don't think, they don't act, they don't do anything because they're dead. And we are spiritually dead, and as spiritually dead people, we don't have it within ourselves to pursue God, to desire God, to want to follow, in, follow God in obedience. We don't have 
that capacity within us apart from this regenerative work of the Spirit. That's the inward call. This new life, this sense of being born again that Jesus talks about in John chapter 3, this idea of being born again, why we talk about ourselves as born again believers. It's this regenerative work of the Spirit. And then we see next conversion, this, this act of faith and repentance that we see here. This, this outward response to the work of the Spirit within us. We respond in faith and we respond in repentance. That's how we respond. We are converted, right? We are being made new. Then we see justification and adoption. Justification is specifically mentioned here, but so is adoption because we see that we are made as the firstborn among many brothers. So we are made co-heirs with Christ. And the way that we're, we're made this way is because we are justified. That's a legal term that means that we're found not guilty. So when we respond in faith and repentance, this work of the Spirit within us, then we are, are made innocent or made, declared not guilty before a holy God. Then we see sanctification and perseverance. It's the summation of the, Christmas, uh, the Christian life. The Christmas life. The summation of the Christian life. Right? So it's not specifically mentioned here, but it's kind of the glue that holds all of this together. That we are being made new, that we are being transformed, and that's, the, that's kind of everything that happens in the Christian life. So often we think about, we stop at conversion, right? We stop at justification, we stop it at the work that God does, and we just say, like, okay, I'm good now, right? The goal is, is that someone hears the gospel, that they say some sinner's prayer, maybe they get baptized, and then it's like, okay, they're good, they're safe, we can move on to, to bigger and better things, and we don't, there's no discipleship, there's no, no spiritual growth, there's no, no one coming alongside them and, 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 and showing them and teaching them the way that, that we're called to in the scriptures. But this, this process, this Christian life, it's more than that, right? That's not the finish line, rather, that's the starting line, where we're, we're finally, we're off the bench, we're on the team, we're finally able to do something, right? And so that's the summation of the Christian life. This sanctifi sanctification and, and, Christ and, and perseverance is the Christian life. It's what it means to be a follower of Christ. And then finally, we see here in, in, in Romans uh, chapter, chapter 8, um, the glorification. This is the final result of Christ's redeeming work. This, that's the end goal, that we are glorified, that we are, are transformed fully and completely into the image of Christ, and that we get to, to be with him in glory. This is what Psalm 23 is talking about here when it talks about restoring our soul and leading us in paths of righteousness. I think if we look closely at it and if we think closely or if we think deeply about it, in many ways I think Romans chapter 8 mirrors a lot of what we see uh, perhaps in, in, a, in a much more direct or technical sense, but it, it, it mirrors a lot of the imagery that we see um, David the poet illustrating for us in Psalm 23. You see, the good shepherd leads us into the peace, assurance, and ultimate fulfillment that can only be found uh, through this restorative work of the soul that comes through a, a living relationship with Christ. That we are made new and that we can then walk in these paths of righteousness and that we can pursue God because we're being transformed day in and day out into the image of Christ. We know what God does for us and we know how he does it or we have a framework for it in this ordo salutis that we see here in, the, in, in places like Romans chapter 8. But the natural question we come to is why? 
right? We know how, we know what it looks like, but the question becomes why. Why does God offer salvation to us? Why does he offer salvation to anyone? What would incline this holy God to get down into the mess and the muck and the mire of humanity? What would incline him to do such a thing? See, again, I think the scripture gives us an answer in the form of a little throwaway phase that we see at the end of Psalm 23, verse 3. For his name's sake. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside still waters. He restores my soul. He leads me in paths of righteousness for his name's sake. What does that mean? Right? We tend to just glance by that because it's kind of a weird terminology. What, what does that mean when someone talks about their namesake? Recall at the beginning I mentioned that God's name, Yahweh, comes from two Hebrew words that means to be. So when God references his name, when God shares his name, it's a, a, a revelatory act, right? So, so when Moses asks God, whom should, should I say sent me? God says, tell them I am sent you. He doesn't say Joe or Bob or Frank, right? When God identifies himself, he points to his being, his nature, his essence, who he is. As one author puts it, the name of God is God's revelation of himself. This is, sort, this is also sort of true of the way others think of us when they hear our name, don't they? Like when someone hears the name Chris Morris, hopefully when they, when they hear my name, they think about things about me, right? They think like, oh, I, yeah, I know him. He's, he's like this. He's, he's th this is the type of person that he is. It, it draws to mind certain things that are true about me. But the name of God specifically and explicitly directs us to those things which are true of him and only him. The ancient Jews so revered the name of God that they, that they wouldn't speak it. Sometimes, though, it came out of a sense of legalism or self-righteousness, but they wouldn't speak it, they wouldn't write it. They so revered the name of God, it was so, so powerful, so revered, that they wouldn't speak it or write it. So when God acts in accordance with or for the sake of his name, it is no small thing. It means that what he does or is doing will reveal or reflect his character in this world. So for my name's sake is synonymous with God's glory. In other words, God does what he does in order to magnify his own glory. And this can be difficult for us to wrap our minds around because a lot of Christianity is aimed at making you feel good about you, right? A lot of the teaching, a lot of the writing, a lot of the things that fall underneath the umbrella of Christianity are all aimed at making you feel really good about you. And the glory of God is an afterthought. So we're indoctrinated to believe that the chief motivating factor for God to act in this, in this world is his love and joy for us. That we're just so great and so important and so wonderful that God can't help but to act. But the Bible says that God's love and goodness towards you is fueled by his zeal for his own glory. Psalm 109.21 says, But you, O God, my Lord, deal on my behalf for your name's sake, because your steadfast love is good. Deliver me. It doesn't negate the fact that God's love for us, which is abundantly clear, 
It doesn't negate God's love for us. We see it time and time again in the scriptures. But it properly roots his love in what is true and good and, 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 and wonderful about God, the eternal source of all of these things. The eternal source of all of these things is ultimately God's love which existed eternally within the Godhead. The relationship between Father, Son, and Spirit that has eternally existed and will eternally exist long before we ever existed and long after we're all gone. So we can rejoice in passages that amplify God's affection toward us, like John 3.16, For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. We can rejoice in that. But we can also rejoice in passages that remind us that God's glory is eternal, like John 17.5. And now, Father, glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had before the world existed. You see, this means that God's glory doesn't depend on us. And that should be a really, really freeing and wonderful thing for us to hear. It shouldn't be offensive, but it should feel, it should feel like a huge weight is lifted off of us. Like, like God's glory in this world is not responsible for how, I'm not responsible for God's glory in this world in how wonderful I preach a sermon on a Sunday morning. And you're not responsible for, for God's glory in this world for the ways that you obey which is good because lots of times we don't obey, right? But God does use us as a means to magnify his glory in this creation. So the answer to the question of why God offers us the hope and salvation described in Psalm 23 is for his name's sake, for the praise of his great name, for his glory. It's important that we keep this perspective because, again, I think our our hearts are so prone to want to make it all about us. We want to make our faith all about us. But I don't want to leave us here today only hearing that exhortation, regardless of how important it is, at the expense of everything else that we see in the psalm. We just finished celebrating Christmas. It's a time when we celebrate the incarnation. And we celebrate that. We celebrate Christmas because God condescended into, our, into humanity. He, he left his throne in heaven and he entered into the mess and the muck and the mire of humanity. We celebrate Christmas because God was willing to take on flesh. He was willing to come and walk among his people. He came in the flesh in the form of a little baby, right? The most, the most weak and helpless uh, aspect of humanity that's possible. That's how he came. And then that baby grew to be a man who walked among his people, correcting them ministering to them, teaching them, healing them, and nurturing their souls in so many ways. And then that man laid down his life upon the cross to take the punishment for our sin, that we could not, that we could, reconciling the debt that we could never pay, once and for all. But then that man also raised again, overcoming the grip of death, defeating death once and for all. And that man was able to do all of those things because that man was not just a man, right? But that man was God. He was our Lord and our Savior, Jesus the Christ. And the same power that rose Jesus from the grave now dwells in us. He restores our soul. He gives us his spirit to live within us. So that every person who puts their hope and their trust in the finished work of Christ knows salvation. 
knows the saving work, knows this restoration, knows this peace, can enter into this peace that satisfies the soul. And God is pleased to reconcile sinners to himself through Jesus. He delights in it. Listen to how Jesus himself describes this in Luke chapter 15. This is where we'll close our time together. Luke chapter 15 in verses 3 through 7. It says, so he told them this parable. This is Jesus telling a parable. He says, what man of you, having a hundred sheep, if he has lost one of them, does not leave the 99 in the open country and go after the one that is lost until he finds it? And when he has found it, he lays it on his shoulders rejoicing. And when he comes home, he calls together his friends and his neighbors, saying to them, Rejoice with me, for I have found my sheep that was lost. Just so, I tell you, there will be more joy in heaven for over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who need no repentance. Listen to that again. Just so, I tell you, there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who need no repentance. You see, all of heaven rejoices and the glory of God is magnified each and every time that one of these lost sheep, that the good shepherd finds and returns one of these lost sheep to the flock. Heaven rejoices. God delights all for his glory. Let's pray. God, we thank you for the truth of your word. We thank you for scriptures like Psalm 23 that remind us that, that you are doing a work in this world, that you are, are working out of your grace and out of your mercy and out of your compassion for our brokenness. You are working in this world. You are working in our lives. You are actively doing something. You are restoring our souls. You are leading us in paths of righteousness. And that all of this work that you do, every time that, that, we, um, that we do uh, some good work in your name, Lord, that you are glorified, that your glory is magnified in this world. Let us rejoice in that. Let us be motivated in that, especially as we enter into a new year with all of the, the, the hopes and dreams that, that lie before us, all of the new opportunities, this fresh start that you give us every 365 days when we just get a, a fresh start. What a, what a great time for us to be studying Psalm 23, to be, to be thinking about these, these truths, Lord. May we use these days that you've given us to glorify you, to magnify your name, to herald your gospel so that more and more lost sheep might be found and returned to the flock. And we just give you all the praise and the glory that you are due. And we ask these things in your most beautiful name. Mm -hmm.